our website under the sermons tab. You can go on Google Play or iTunes and look at Covenant Church Sermons. It'll be there too. Um, You can always go back and catch up that way. Um, But this is going to be fun, and I think we're going to close this well. And we're going to do it with a little bit of nostalgia. And so I'm going to put a picture on the screen just for a moment. I'm going to see if Matthew can get there. That's perfect. Okay. How many of you, without saying it out loud, how many of you know what that is? Just by show of hands. That's a good 38%. How many of you have no idea what that is? That's a pile of something. How many of you are afraid to say you don't know either way? You're just, I'm unwilling to make a choice. I'm going to ride the line until you make me make a choice. Okay, so um, this is what's known as a 45 RPM adapter for a record. Okay, how old are we feeling, some of us? It invented in 1951, so start placing people in their proper generations now. Um, this allowed, this little insert, you would put it in the middle of a small record that would allow it to be played in a normal LP spindle, on a normal record player. And so when you had, for instance, like, a, gosh, we're in MP3 world, so when you had a CD or a cassette single, this was the equivalent of how you play your record single on your record player. And so you could get a record that had one song on it, on each side, and this little thing would get smashed into the middle, and it was a whole, it's a whole thing. It was a big thing, and if you grew up in uh, the era where these existed, these were everywhere. These just kind of were like in your, you know when you open your junk drawer now, and there's old rubber bands, and there's pins, and there's paper clips. There were like seven of these things, and you never needed as many as you had, but you could buy ten of them for like a dime. We had a bunch of these around. We also had, um, we had multiple record players, because you have to have multiple record players when you're, you ever have one of these? Yeah. So this was um, my own personal mp3 player that was my ipod growing up this is the old fisher price 45 player and so it had that little brown thing that would slip up and then you could play your small records or if you put the brown thing down the the little um orange spindle would play all your normal records and i remember as a kid i don't know why but all of our uh all of our kind of singles all of our rp or 45 records were were motown records and i grew up in south texas a very white family, and yet, man, we were, we were like a Motown family. And so I grew up with the Commodores, and then the Pointer Sisters had a couple hits in there that I was pretty excited about. And the fun part was, especially when you're little, you can listen to the same song over and over and over and over again. So I'd get one of those 45s, and we would just wear out the grooves with this little tiny Fisher-Price record player. And so, you know, three times a lady, a thousand times I would sing that in a day. And my parents would just wonder why the five-year-old kid is just, it's a thing for me. Me and Lionel Richie had a connection. Later, right, this changed, and so records sort of started going away, and then you could buy cassettes, but there was a cassette single. And that had one song on each side of the cassette, and then those sort of started going away, and then they had CDs, but then you could buy CD singles which was just cheaper. It's a way to get the one song you wanted. And then there was Napster and iTunes, and now it's all over and music is lost. But for those of us who remember the good old days, um, that's just the way it was. When you found the song you liked, you had to purchase it, and then you had to play that song over and over and over again. In the records era, it was Motown and then tapes. You kind of got into New Wave, and, and then by CD time, it was grunge, and here we are. So my, my children do the same thing. They have a, the modern version of this. They have the little Amazon smart speaker, the, the like $20 one. It sounds like a tin cup. And yet, they'll tell it to play something. And then Brixton especially, she's six years old, she'll say, play this song. And it'll end, and you'll hear her go, hey, play this song. And she'll keep telling it to play the same song. And so for hours, she'll be up in her room dancing to the, the same song. 
One song endlessly repeated. So sometimes we're fooled of the simplistic romance of days gone by. I mean, I just said it now. Music's ruined now. We're reminded and sort of we reminisce and think, gosh, this wasn't it simpler? Wasn't it better? It may have been simpler. I don't know that it was any better. Because my kids can pull up any song in the entire music world with their voice. And there's something to that. What hasn't changed, what has changed is we don't need the plastic insert to listen to music anymore. What hasn't changed is that we still often get stuck on that one song over and over. It just becomes that song of our life. The thing in here, the reason we bring this up, the reason this makes any sense, is so many of us live that life, that one song over and over and over again. We live every day as kind of this same song. And we find ourselves in, in what I would call a rut. Records had grooves, you know, you play, the, the needle goes through the groove and it plays the song. Records had grooves, people have ruts. Where we get stuck in the same song and over and over and over again, we find ourselves living the same thing, different day. This is why we like vacation so much. It isn't that vacation actually changes anything about our life, but it removes us for a while from the rut. It takes us away from that rut that we're in, that same song groove, and it allows us to experience something different. The problem is, if we don't change the song of our daily existence, we come back from vacation and that same cycle is waiting, the same rut is waiting, and we find ourselves back in the same place that we look to escape in the first place. So we're going to read uh, two parts of Psalm 40 today. First, we're going to read verse 1 through 3, and that'll be up on the screen for you. You can read with me. David, the psalmist, says, I waited patiently for the Lord. He turned to me and heard my cry. He lifted me out of the slimy pit, out of the mud and the mire. He set my feet on a rock and gave me a firm place to stand. He put a new song in my mouth, a hymn of praise to our God. Many will see and fear the Lord and put their trust in him. And then verse 14, it continues. May all who want to take my life be put to shame and confusion. May all who desire my ruin be turned back in disgrace. May those who say to me, aha, be appalled at their own shame. But may all who seek you rejoice and be glad in you. May those who long for your saving help always say the Lord is great. As for me, I am poor and needy. May the Lord think of me. You are my help and my deliverer. You are my God. Do not delay. I read those two pieces together because... Early in the, in the psalm, he says, God has put a new song in my mouth. And then we kind of ask the question, what is that song? And it's there in verse 16. May all who seek you rejoice and be glad in you. May those who long for your saving help always say, the Lord is great. That's the song that he's given us. A saving song that reminds us on a daily basis that God is, God is great. God has saved us. And if we can keep that song on our lips, everything changes. David talks about enemies throughout the psalm, that he's facing these enemies, and his enemies were people. He had people out to get him, people looking to take him down to ruin him. You and I, our greatest enemy is often ourself. Desiring meaning, we seek meaningless things. Desiring purpose, we choose a purposeless path. Desiring hope, we chase hopeless pursuits. Longing to be whole and to find peace, we engage with brokenness after brokenness, resentment and revenge and jealousy and gossip and anger and bitterness. And we wonder, we wonder why it doesn't repair the brokenness in us. When we find ourselves in that rut of just chasing the next thing and the next day, we find ourselves in the rut. What happens eventually is our faith begins to falter. And as our own greatest enemy, we find ourselves sort of pulling back from faith itself because it's not working for me. The reason for this, I think, is often when we get into that faith rut, 
we default to karma. I heard a theologian once say that in a lot of ways, the Old Testament was, was karmic in a sense. That there was a lot of eye for an eye. There was a lot of you do well and you're blessed. And that's not universally true. And that's never the theology I'd want you to hear that we're saying the Old Testament was karmic. But in a sense, people will look at that and go, that had more of a karmic flavor to it. And then something happened in the New Testament. Something happened with the, the coming Christ. And, and all of that changed. The eye for an eye thing was, was gone. And the, the repay evil for evil, that was gone. And all those things started to fade away. And there was this whole new dawning. We became like a post-karmic people. That those who believe in Christ entered a, a new stream of grace that was far beyond the previous law-based society. The reality for us, though, is we default back to that. I need the law. I need right and wrong. And if I do enough good stuff, God will bless me. And if I don't do too much wrong stuff, maybe he won't hurt me. And maybe the reason I got the flu this year and not last year is because, you know, I didn't tithe like I did the previous year. And so, all right, give a little bit more in the black box and you may not have to spend it at the doctor. You know, that could be, that's not true. But we convince ourselves of these strange little things. What did I do to earn? What did I do to deserve? And that's a whole nuanced discussion, and are there consequences for your actions? Yes, and all that is true. And yet, when we default in our faith rut, we default back to karma. And so we take on this subtle belief that, that maybe we have to be good enough to be worth being saved in the first place. Or maybe, like, God will, will see us fail and remove our salvation. Or he'll see us succeed and he'll bless us more. And that's the false soul-level wave that erodes our faith. And if we're not careful and if we don't see it, we find ourselves going through the motions of faith long enough that we wake up one day and we go, I think I believe in this stuff, but I don't feel it anymore. We are post-karmic. Our enemies are not obvious like David's enemies. Our enemies are the default of ourselves when we walk back into a place of, of law and legalism. Our enemy is seen in a translucent window. You ever... My elementary school growing up didn't have any windows you could see out of. I don't know what the point was. Some Cold War idea that the enemy couldn't see in. Maybe, I don't know. But you could always see things going outside, but in a translucent window, you don't see clearly. You see it like a blur of a shape, maybe. And you can get a sense for how big it is, maybe. You can think that was a person or a really big dog, whatever, just walked by the room. And that's the enemies that, that you and I hold in our everyday life today. They're not always clear. They're seen through translucent glass, and we kind of get a sense for them, but nothing direct. Nothing direct. Because of that, it's difficult to win that fight. Pride doesn't have a really clear shape in our life. Greed doesn't have a clear shape in our life. Lust always doesn't have a, a clear shape in our life. It's just this sort of thing on the other end of the glass that we, we can see it, but I don't know how to attack it because I can't even tell exactly what it is. Requires different weapons is what we learn. What we're talking about this week is this, this idea of non-traditional armaments. And there's a devotional this week that we talk more about non-traditional armaments. What does it mean? The old, the old way of fighting in David's day, when you had a clear enemy and a clear someone out to get you, there was an easier way to attack that because you knew what it was. And in the, in the era of grace, we have to take up non-traditional weapons. Because trying harder doesn't work. Because doing better to hope to be blessed better doesn't work. We're in the era of grace. A story told in Africa often about how to catch a monkey. And it's probably not entirely true, but it's based in some truth. I've talked to a few people that go, no, I've heard that, but I don't know. We don't do that, but I've heard it. So, Serge, don't judge me. And the way it went is there, 
if you get into certain areas of, of Africa, some of the places we lived in, in the middle of the biggest city, you usually don't have issues. But as soon as you get outside of, of the center of the city, in the wildlife, like it is here, you got a raccoon in your trash, trash can, they have a baboon in the trash can. I mean, it's a real thing. And, and monkeys can be a real pest. They don't have a whole lot of fear, and they're pretty smart, and they know how to avoid people. And so they become a pest, and they tear stuff up, and they get into things, and they really make a mess. And so as the years go by, people have tried to come up with one way after another, how to trap them, how to get rid of them, how to, and all their, all their methods had bad results. And so if you, if you try to do like a net, well, the monkey's smarter than you when you're standing at the bottom of a tree with a net, it's, it's not going to get caught. And if it does, well, you got one a day and good luck. Or people said, well, we can dart them, but they didn't want to hurt the thing. And so if you dart something 30 yards up in the air and it falls, you might as well have just shot it. So that wasn't working. And they had to come up with a way to trap them so they could relocate them, put them in a burlap sack, drive them out a few miles, and, and relocate them to an area outside of where people are. And so the way that the story goes is, is you would take a gourd, you know, a big hollow gourd, and they would drill a hole in the top. And in the, down in the top of the gourd, there'd be a hole just big enough for a monkey to, if you kind of stretch your hand out, you know, if you make your fingers like this, your hand can kind of get into a smaller spot. And you would put a, a hole in the top of the gourd, and the monkey would put his hand into the gourd. Into the gourd, though, you have sprinkled um, peanuts, like in-the-shell whole peanuts. So the monkey smells the peanuts, wants the peanuts, puts the hand into the gourd, and can grab a hold of the peanuts. But in grabbing hold of the peanuts, he now has a fist, and he can't get his hand out. And the gourd being heavy and the monkey being small, you walk up with your burlap bag, and you put it over the monkey, and you say, thank you very much, and you move on. And you reset the trap, and the next monkey comes in, and it does the same thing. It can get his hand in, but it won't drop the peanuts. And so it traps itself. The monkey is trapped because it can't let go of the little things. But it doesn't realize this. It's trapped because it can't let go of the little things. And so the question for us becomes, when we find ourselves in a rut in life, when we find ourselves in a faith crisis in life, what are the little things trapping us that we refuse to let go of? The peanuts of life. In relationship, when we can't find reconciliation in something, we can't find it because we can't get over one little thing, and it's that one little thing, and we refuse to let go, and because we refuse to let go of the peanuts in that relationship, the way that this person hurt us eight years ago, remember when they said that thing, and I'm not sure what they meant, but if they meant what I think they meant, then we don't need to be friends anymore. That thing is us with our hand in the gourd, and we're trapped because we're unwilling to let go of the little things to focus on the bigger thing in life. So before we can pick up the weapons that Scripture lays out for us, these non-traditional armaments, before we can carry those in our daily life, the reality is we have to let go of the things that we're carrying instead. You ever try to carry two things at once? As a parent, that goes really well for you. You have a kid in one arm and you're trying to clear the table with the other. Or uh, I'm world famous for dropping everything in my house, but um, when I break a toe, it's because I drop a dinner plate on my toe. And when I, when I drop a dinner plate, it's because I was holding six cups and six other dinner plates, and so the one went tumbling. And then I'm... Um, soccer inclined and so i'll try to stop it from hitting the ground by using my foot to catch it and that ends up just breaking the toe we can't carry all that at once we have to put something down if we're going to carry something well ephesians 6 13 very familiar verse if you spend any part of your childhood in church therefore put on the full armor of god when the day of evil comes you may be able to stand your ground when you find yourselves facing an enemy, you stand your ground. 
After you've done everything, you may stand. Stand firm then with the belt of truth buckled around your waist and the breastplate of righteousness in place, with your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. In addition to all this, it says, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God, and pray in the spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. With this in mind, be alert and always keep on praying for the Lord's people. These are the non-traditional armaments we talk about. These are the weapons that God has asked us to take in the era of grace. To carry truth and righteousness as we walk through the day, treating people with grace and dignity while being rooted in truth ourselves. So that seems pretty straightforward. Well, okay, well, that seems like a thing. But you can't carry truth if you won't let go of the lie. The lie that this addiction or this habit is actually going to bring health or the, the lie that, that this path that you're taking is is going to lead you to greater fruitfulness. If, if you carry the lie, you can't hold the truth at the same time. So every day you choose one. You choose the rut of your existence or the new song of salvation. It says carry the gospel of peace. You can't hold peace in one hand while simultaneously holding slander or gossip or malice at the same time. They don't go together. So you can't be repairing a relationship while holding on to the wedge that drove you apart in the first place. And so every day you choose one. Do you want the rut or do you want the new song of salvation? It says hold firm to faith and assurance of salvation. You cannot simultaneously, simultaneously carry faith in God that is working all things out to your good, is what scripture says, and also hold an acute anxiety about the questions of tomorrow. You can't hold them both. You cannot hold the assurance of salvation and the karmic idea that you need to be good enough today, otherwise you'll lose what God gave you yesterday. Every day you choose one. Do I choose the rut of my existence, or do I sing this song of salvation? So the question for us is, what habit or mindset are you holding on to? What addiction or fantasy about the future is causing you to miss out on the present? What lie or wedge will you not let go of? Or maybe even more simply, who among us still walks into the day going, you know, I just hope it'll all work out. Because as we said, hope is not a strategy. Hope is a passive thing. And biblically, hope is an active thing. When you, when you look at scripture and you look at the word hope and you look at all the different places it's used and where we're to put our hope, hope is not a sit back on the couch and hope it all works out as the house burns around us. We go, well, hope the fire truck will get here. Hope is an active thing. Hope is an active chasing of Christ. Hope is an active surrendering of Christ in every area of our life. And so when we wonder why this relationship is in tatters, our hope is not going, well, I hope it'll just work itself out. Our hope is going, I will place myself deeper in Christ. I'll surrender this relationship. I'll figure out how I need to die so that this person might live in relationship with me. Where do I need to just lay down my life for them? And when, our, when we place our hope in Christ, it's different than having bland I hope it'll all work out. You have to proactively root out what doesn't belong and let it go so that you can grab hold of truth and righteousness, peace and faithfulness of salvation and prayer. You have to let go of the lie so that you can hold the truth. For my kids, if they want to hear a new song, they have to stop the song they're listening to. When I was a kid, 
You couldn't just pull the needle back and start the record over and hope that it said something different. It was the same grooves, the same rut every time. You have to take the record off and install an entirely new record. And that's what's being offered to us in the person of Christ. It's not a hope that eventually this record will morph into a different record and I won't be bored by the same old song. It's there is a new song. We are only trapped in the rut because we refuse to let go of the peanuts of life. We can keep singing secular songs, hoping that the world is going to figure it out, hoping that the world is going to save us through any number of the different idols we keep. Empty promises and momentary relief, or we can sing the new song we have. The song of salvation. That Jesus came to save us and set us free. There are people in the room who wonder sometimes, and I hear this because I've been asked this. People say, why, why every week, almost without fail, every week there's some like, sometimes it's a little bit and sometimes a little more, sometimes it's a minute and sometimes it's five. Why do we have the same gospel every week? We have to be reminded every week that Jesus died for me. Yeah, I know, I heard last week. You got to say that he died for me, that he paid the penalty for my sins, that, that he was on the cross because he was taking what I deserved. And I've had preachers, other preachers say, yeah, I don't, I don't do that. Well, I don't believe in, in every week having to restate the obvious. I mean, people are here because they know that part. And I say, that's, that's the absolute opposite of why we're here. We're here because every other thing in our faith is rooted in the one thing that Christ got on the cross for us, that Christ was put in the tomb and that the tomb could not hold him and he rose again. Everything we have is based there. And so every week, there will be weeks in here, and now you will notice it, and you'll go, gosh, again? Yeah, this is every week. The reason we come back to it every week and the reason that it needs to find its way into the sermon every single week is because that is our hope. And anything short of that becomes religion. Do better. Try harder. It doesn't mean you're not supposed to do better and try harder. It means that you don't do better and try harder to get better. You've been made better. We don't sing the song of salvation in order to try to earn it, we sing the song of salvation because it was first sung over us. Jesus invites us into the life that he gave his life to create for us. We sing the song of salvation because he first sang it over us. That while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. So that no amount of wrong, no amount of sin will be chalked up on our debt. And he erased it and invited us into life. This is a song of deep humility. There's no deeper humility than the willingness to give up one's life for another. To judge someone else's existence is more important than your own. To their breath more important than yours. There's no greater humility than to say, I would rather give mine up so that they might live. And yet that's what Christ did for us the ultimate selfless act, that's the salvation song we've been invited into, is the song of intense humility. In verse 17, David says, I am poor and needy. He closes this psalm by saying, I am poor and needy. Oh, that's a nice sentiment. He's the king. He wants for nothing. He needs nothing. And anything he wants, all he has to do is say it, and it's brought to him. He wants for nothing. And David looks at himself in the mirror. David looks at maybe his greatest enemy in the mirror. Says, I'm poor and I'm needy. That's humility. When we find true humility, we find the song of salvation. 
when we realize that we are poor and needy, that we are the poor and powerless, that we are the ones who Christ had to come for. When we realize that, that humility takes hold, and then the song of salvation can truly be sung. To see oneself as poor and powerless is to finally see clearly. To finally see clearly, to see the unambiguous necessity of the power of God to break into our lives and save us. Short of that humility, realizing that we are the poor and powerless, we're living in karma still. I can do enough, be enough, earn enough to make it. And yet David, the king, says, I am poor and needy. What David's doing is recognizing that at the cliff of life, he can't save himself. He can't rescue himself. So David appeals to something greater that can Once we have surrendered our lives to God, once we have chosen to follow Jesus with our days, our everyday song has to be a remembrance and a reminder of what brought us into that song in the first place, what included us into that melody the first time. So we have the daily choice. We have the daily choice to live in our new identity as his children, to live the new song of our salvation, the song that was first sung over us on the cross that day. We can live in that song or we can choose to live in the old song as much as we want. We can still be the lost and lonely. We can still be the broken and blind. It doesn't mean when we choose to follow Christ that there isn't still hurt and brokenness. It doesn't mean that there isn't still trial and tribulation. What it means is that the song we sing in response to those things is not a song of helplessness but of ultimate hopefulness. That as followers of Jesus, when we run into trial, when we run into hurt, when we run into loss, when we run into grief, the song we sing is the song of salvation still. Because our hope is not placed in what could be. As followers of Christ, our hope is placed in what already has been. And that's the whole difference. Our hope is not in what could be, what I could be, how I could be better. Our hope is in Christ already did it for me. And I am included and I am whole that I don't fear anymore. I'm no longer a slave to the idols that chained me. I'm no longer a slave to the fears that held me. I'm no longer a slave to all of the things in my old life. I've been sung over the song of salvation, and it is my choice every day to live in it. And when we sing the song of salvation, when we live in the new song every day, even the hardest days, can be met with hallelujah. Because loss is not the end, because grief is not the end, because hurt is not the end, we've been promised that it's a refining fire that will make us better, that will bring us closer, and that when our work here is done, that we will be ushered into the beauty of an eternity with a creator. And that should floor us and astound us, and like David, it should humble us. To think that he put a new song in my mouth. That he loved me enough to see me struggling. To see me grasping. And he says, I got you. The parent who goes over and hands the kid a new record. Doesn't matter how much you love that song you had on repeat. When you got the new 45, man, that's the new song on repeat. God, in effect, does that for us. 
sees us in that rut, sees us in that same old groove that we've been in forever, don't know how to get out of it, and God goes, I got you. Play this instead. And watch your joy increase and watch your hope flourish. Watch your faith grow. It won't be easy. It'll be good. God invites us to walk away from the rut into new life, into a new song, into a daily remembrance that it is our choice what we sing with our day. So as Greg and the band come back up and we sing again, one of the things that we have the great pleasure of doing every week is communion. We put the bread and the cup on the table every single week. Jesus laid this out for us and, and we get to take the bread and dip it in the cup as a remembrance as that reminder of the song that we've been given. And I know I say this all the time. It's something we can take for granted really easily. Yeah, I do the bread and I do the, and it's, it's a thing I do. But we, let us never take it for granted. The opportunity to be reminded that Jesus saw us in our suffering and loved us enough that he took on greater suffering, that he gave up his body represented by the bread, that it was broken for us. He saw us in our suffering and he took on the greater suffering. His blood was shed for you and for all so that all of our sins would be forgiven, represented by the cup. So when we take the bread and we dip it in the cup, it is not just a religious act. It's an act of remembrance, of holy revival in our own hearts where we go, this is the song I long to sing with my days. May my life be poured out. May my life be broken so that others might know the joy I know. And so as we come and take communion over the next three songs, I pray for that revival in your heart. That it would be a, a weekly occurrence. If you're a guest with us and you go, you know what, I'm not sure that's for me or I'm not ready yet or I'm not a follower of Christ yet and this whole thing is a little bit, I got some questions. We would say you're in the right spot. Love you right where you are. God is not surprised that you are where you are and you're here for a reason. So hang in there. The truth will come. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word, for the beauty of the scripture. Thank you for David and his faithfulness, his faithfulness to fail and put it on display for us, that we can see that there's no amount of rights that we can do to earn salvation, but ultimately, God, that when even the king needs to lay down at your feet, so much more us. Father, I pray that we would grasp the song that you've sung over us, the song of hope and freedom, the loosing of our bondage. Father, thank you for salvation. And we believe today, we believe anew. Remind us and revive us and send us out of this place, not as religious people going through the motions, but as people entirely renewed, carrying a new song with us to share with a world in need. Father, we love you. We thank you. We pray in your son's name.